I've seen so much ugly within the political space in the sense from like an outside lens that I, I don't feel like that's my path in fixing it. I feel like my path could be through the private sector, whether it's in like employing a lot more Haitians than I am now and creating different enterprises that can create economic wealth. And I feel like I can have like a tangible impact on is if can I create a job that'll employ three people that'll be able to support their families. Welcome to another episode of season one of McDonough Talks, where we build community through storytelling. Today, I'm joined by my cohort mate and teammate, Sebastian Delator. So happy to have him on here. Sebastian is a first year MBA student. He's also the vice president at Commercial Services, Inc. CSI is a family owned agency based in Haiti, representing the biggest pharmaceutical powerhouses in the world. Prior to business school, Sebastian worked in Florida across various industries. In addition to the pharmaceutical field, he has experience in finance and multinational fast food corporations. He is multilingual in English, French, and Haitian Creole. To top it off, he's a double Hoya with a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, where he double majored in finance and management. Sebastian, is there anything you cannot do? I appreciate it and thank you for the intro. Your bio, you know, speaks for itself. You grew up in Haiti and I want to learn about where you come from and coming from a third world country. What was the mindset for you growing up in terms of creating a life for yourself? So, yeah, to, to kick it off, I was born and raised in Port-au-Prince. And so I was born in a, a, a hospital in like the main city. And but the thing is, when I was born, my mom was was an American citizen. So she declared me American in the embassy. And that kind of unlocked a lot of things later on in life. But um, yeah, I grew up in Haiti and it was an, an amazing experience, but also kind of a bittersweet in the sense of there's like Haiti is like the, the, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But we haven't always been this way. Like we used to be like literally the pearl of the Antilles and we've really fallen down a, over the years. And it, it's been kind of a roller coaster ride. And I, I grew up a very fortunate just in comparison to the greater population. And I, I was also in a household that kind of we were raised to understand like the privileges that we do have and the impact that we can have in our communities and the, in, the, in the world around us. And I was fortunate enough to be in like, I was in school in Haiti from a primary school up until high school. But I had cousins that lived in Florida. So I would travel to, to, to Florida once once or twice a year, depending on kind of vacations and, and when we were able to, to travel. So I was able to kind of learn about like American culture and speak English a little bit better. And, and yeah, and it was just like a, a great kind of connection I was able to make just having like family abroad. But I did spend my primary schooling in Haiti. And the, the, only, the only point in time in which I, I moved out of Haiti was when I was a freshman in high school. And that was in January of 2010 when the earthquake hit. And that was kind of like a really big life-changing moment in my life. You bring up the earthquake. I think we'll get there. We'll take it one step at a time. Just kind of focusing on growing up and, and your family dynamic. So your mom is an American citizen. How did she meet your dad? Like, is she from the States? So my great-grandparents from my mom's side are from Lebanon. They moved to Haiti in the early like 1920s. And my, my great-grandfather, by the name of Clifford Abraham, started commercial services in 1950. And my mom was, was, was born in Haiti, but my mom went to school in Washington, D.C. And, and gained her U.S. citizenship. My mom went to um, George Washington University, and my dad went to, went to Georgetown. So he's, a, he's an alumni, but they actually met in Haiti. And, and your dad's Haitian, too? Yes, my dad, is, my dad is fully Haitian. On my dad's side, that's, his that's such a Haitian. small world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a like really, really small world. And the thing is, like in, within their communities, their families were kind of unique in the sense of, of numbers, just based on numbers. My grandfather had seven daughters, of which my mom is the, the third eldest. And on my dad's side, my, my grandfather had, had five boys. So and then they, the, the funny thing is the reason why my mom met my dad was actually because my uncle, my dad's older brother, was dating my mom's older sister. And that's how they kind of met. <laughs> And the funny story, actually, they, my, my, I was talking to my parents about how they met the other day, and they were telling me that my dad, so when my dad was about 16, and my dad actually grew up on, a, on, on the very humble side. 
and um, my mom too, actually, for that matter. And but my dad, he around sixteen, his he actually moved to to Africa, and he spent a, um, a couple years in in Africa, and he adopted like the the, the how to put this the whole Afro and like dashi, that dashiki look, and he came back to Haiti, and they actually met at the airport. And my mom told me that my dad, my if you ask my dad the story, my dad will tell you that it was his style that attracted my mom. My mom just thought he looked ridiculous, and 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 how he was and how he was um and how he was dressed in the sense of like it, he he didn't wear the elements right. He bombarded everything together, but that was kind of like their, the story, the start of their romance. And they got married in, in Dogren Chapel at Georgetown. Then they had my my eldest sister Stephanie. And in Connecticut, but Stephanie, my, my eldest sister, had was she was born with, with certain complication. She has Down syndrome, and given kind of like the trajectory of my dad and my mom's career, they they moved back to Haiti. My mom moved back to work at commercial services and to, to start raising my eldest sister in Haiti. Gotcha. You may not know this, but I'm I'm just curious if if you could shed some light on kind of their mindset. You know, they have your older sister Stephanie. She has Down syndrome. Why not stay in the States where medicine's better, they could get help for her? And why did they arrive at the decision to move back to Haiti? Is it like something familial where it like strong family ties and everyone wants to be together? Is your, I guess that's the bigger question is, is your family all in Haiti still? It sounds like you come from a big family. So great question. So to, to answer that, it was all about like the, the family ties because my, my, my grandparents on both sides were living in Haiti. They felt that they would have more like family support. My mother had gone to kind of like the degree she pursued was, was to kind of come back and, and work um, if for the company. So she, she did want to come, come back and work. And my dad did not have his, his citizenship. His plan was, was to come back to Haiti. So it, it was kind of like both in line with kind of their careers and their close-knit uh, aspect of family. Cool. Does your dad work for the family business too, or what does he do? No, so my dad, is a, he's a consultant. He actually works for ADZI, which stands for like the, and, uh, the, the industrial garment sector of Haiti. So he's a, he's a consultant that also lobbies on certain actions and uh, legislations on behalf of kind of like the business and uh, private sector in Haiti in D.C., so he works a lot with the, the the U.S. government and the Haitian private sector in D.C. So one of the one of the trades he does as well is kind of he has an art gallery that he that he does certain shows in D.C. This was pre-pandemic, but it was kind of like following the legacy of, of his parents because my grandparents on his side had a, a big art gallery in Haiti that he kind of continued on the legacy post earthquake. But he he's not he does not work for the family business actually. The, the family business was. The, the, there were three sisters that, that went back to work and only and, and the other two spent like one or two years. My mom has been with the company for over 30 years and is the company's like CEO and honestly has, has really navigated the company through like a lot of different hurdles, which was kind of just kind of inspiring to just grow up with. Did they always want you to come back and work for the family business? My parents never kind of give me pressure that I would have to come back and work for the family businesses, which was really atypical in my kind of environment, where a lot of the the parents of of the students in my schools were were, were really kind of like shaping their, their students to kind of take over family businesses. And my, my parents wanted me to pursue um, whatever I wanted to pursue, which was kind of just awesome to have them as parents. Yeah, that kind of support is comforting and awesome to hear and see that, you know, a, a set of parents have their children create their own path and, and figure out life for themselves. So it's not a surprise, you know, hearing that story, you are the way you are. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I would imagine you and your family are part of the elite. It sounds like, you know, you guys run a successful business and I imagine that there are opportunities for you and your family that a lot of other people in Haiti don't have. It's like, what, what was it like living there? Like I've, I've read a story about how he doesn't have any COVID vaccines and people are more worried about violence than they are the virus. Can you paint a picture of, of what it's like there now and, and growing up? And were you aware of any perceived differences between you and your family and other people that, that you lived around or were exposed to in school? So absolutely, like I, I knew from a very early age that I grew up in a very privileged family and household. 
just given the abject poverty that's kind of like written within the country in the sense of like there's a huge disparity of wealth where like 80% of the population lives like below the poverty line. And you have about 5% of the population that controls 90% of the wealth. And just to put in, in perspective, because it's, it's important to understand like the relative uh, equivalence in kind of like U.S. terms. So like the, the Haitian elite, if you will, the 5% would kind of would, would, would be part of like an upper middle class in the United States. But uh, just given kind of like this, the, the size of the economy, that's kind of how, how, how they relate. Now, growing up, I, I knew I was privileged just given kind of the school I went to was an American school that taught classes in, in English. And just given kind of that it was a private school and that, that had a, a basically like students of the ambassadors and kind of just the, the population that it attracted were kind of of the affluent population of Haiti. But the, the real difference within my family is kind of that they, my, my parents grew up in, in humble backgrounds. So we kind of understood the evolution of not just wealth, but the importance of kind of understanding like what you do have. And our household was very cognizant of kind of like the poverty around us. And I was just blessed to be in a family that really understood my blessings and my privilege from, from an early point of view. And it was kind of like a, a different way to grow up in the sense of like, I knew that there were certain things that were unfair. Like there were people my age that were not able to go to school because they, they, they couldn't even afford like shoes on their feet. And here I was like driving past them in a car. And, and it was, it was a, a really tough kind of environment to grow up in, in that sense. But it was just about like having mental fortitude and understanding like what you can and cannot change. But for a kid and a child, it is kind of hard to understand. But a lot of uh, the way that the elite uh, function in Haiti is that they, they are blind to the, the poverty that's, that's right in front of them. And it is tough to, to grow up around, but there's also like a lot of beauty within like the Haitian population that we, I feel like are one of like the most resilient people. And I saw that just given like after the earthquake, like, because it was at a point in time where everyone, like regardless of, of your socioeconomic class, you were kind of leveled in the sense that a lot of people lost loved ones. I lost my grandparents in the earthquake that my, like my, 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 my dad's parents, um, like the, their house like collapsed on them, like my, my family's business completely collapsed. It was a really a time where like everyone was kind of leveled to the same like playing field. And it was, I really kind of saw like the resilience of the Haitian people. Um, so as, as much as there, there is like a disparity in, in wealth within the country, there is a united like love for the culture. Um, the, the issue within Haiti like today is that we have like the political atmosphere really uh, destroys kind of like the, 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 the life and the joie de vivre within the country because there, there's a lot of self-interested individuals within the, 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 the public sector that are not working for the country's best interests. And that's been, that, that, that's happened like over the course of history, but it's one of like the sad components of living in Haiti. But I do, do not get me wrong. There are like a lot of beautiful like aspects in the sense of the, the culture is beautiful. Like our art is beautiful. The food, our beaches, our mountains, like everything besides the certain things that are man-made are, are like uniquely like beautiful in the world. Yeah, the the little I've seen or been exposed to Haitian people in the culture is super vibrant and outgoing and lively and just magnetic almost. You just want to be around them, even if, you know, there may be some financial disparities, everyone still will pull for one another. A hundred percent. And it kind of embedded within our history. And not to take a, like a quick history lesson, but just to like set the give perspective. Like Haiti is the first black republic of the world where we gain our independence from the French in like 1804. And at the time it was Haiti was ostracized from the world because all the big powers in the West and the East couldn't support like the first black sovereign state. So within our history, we, we've always kind of been like n not just rebellious, but resilient. And I think the love of our own Black history has also propelled a sort of love and unity like throughout the country, like regardless of like socioeconomic classes or some sort of national identity. This is like kind of where we're from and where we've come from. And it is something that kind of is to be like proud of. I want to take a second to you brought up the earthquake and your experience there. We're on the same study team in Saxa and in our leadership class, you shared a story about your experience in the earthquake. And I just want to revisit that with you. And do you remember, uh, obviously remember it, but like, 
Can you walk me through the day? Do you remember like every step you took that day? Or I'm curious to hear more about what that was like for you. Absolutely. I, I remember that day, honestly, like perfectly clear. I was a freshman in, in high school and it was a day before a semester exams. And a, I was studying outside of my house. And when the earthquake started, I, I, I immediately thought, I thought it was some sort of bombing or some sort of, sort of cause like you, I grew up also like, like hearing shooting all around my house and stuff like that. So it wasn't really like atypical, but then what was insane was just the, 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 the length of like the, how the timing, like it lasted, like it lasted 30 seconds. It was like terrifying. I, I wasn't at, ho- at my house with my, my mom and my, my sister, not my other sister, but I have, I have two sisters, Stephanie and, and Christina. And I was with Christina and my, and my mom. And when the, when, the, when it's, when it's, when things started shaking, we moved toward the, the outside of my house. And very quickly, there was kind of a, a, a dust cloud of smoke that kind of rose around the city. And it was, it, it was super eerie. And so immediately we tried to contact my dad, but at the time we, we, you couldn't really find anyone on, on, on the phone. So we got like very, we got, we got terrified because my dad we had a, a meeting at a, at, the, at a hotel Montana. And one of the first news that we heard was that the hotel Montana had completely like it, it shattered, like it, 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 it was leveled. So I, it, we were in like immediate like panic and, and worry about like where, where my father was and we couldn't reach him over the phone and we couldn't reach like anybody for that for, for that matter and then because of the earthquake like 90 percent of the, of the of the buildings in the capital were destroyed it was like a 7.2 magnitude earthquake it, it destroyed like it destroyed the country we had over like 300 to 400 thousand immediate deaths my father got home about three hours later because there was a lot of there was there was really bad traffic and it when he came they were kind of like at that moment you, you kind of you're reaching out to everyone that you know, like all your loved ones, um, friends and family to like find out like, is, is everyone okay? And it was at that point in time that we that we also couldn't find my grandparents. And I can't remember the details as to how they found out that my, my grandparents, like the first like, communication that my grandparents had, had passed away. But I think it's like one of them like had arrived at their house and the house was completely, like completely destroyed. And so that was kind of like really, really hard. Because like here I was like going to study for like an exam that's gonna take tomorrow and your whole life gets kind of, kind of like thrown upside down. Then we find out that unlike my mom's like the, like the, the business was like completely like destroyed as well. And it was just super hard. And then you, you start to reach out to friends and you hear about different, different friends that have kind of lost their parents and kind of loved ones. And it was just like a really like tough day. Man, that's awful. I can't imagine how tough that must have been. What was the aftermath like? What what happened next? After that, what happened because I, I was American and uh, like most of my friends were American, especially like at, at like my American school, like they sent out like like military planes to kind of evacuate like all Americans, and most of my friends fled the country like immediately. On my side of the family, it was the complete opposite. I had cousins from all over the states that flew into Haiti to help, so I decided to stay. And part of my decision to stay was one, I wanted to stay for my grandparents' funeral. One, I wanted to just figure out, like, I, I, my whole life was in Haiti. I was in school there. Like, to me, it wasn't just that easy to kind of just, like, leave. Um, but a lot of my friends kind of, like, their, their, their parents made the decision for them and they, and they left. Me, like, I, I also wanted to, like, stay and help because why I, I was, I spoke the three languages. And we did know there, were, there was going to be, like, a lot of need for help in the hospital. So while, we, while I stayed for my grandparents' funeral for the planning and, and all of that, me and my cousins also went to volunteer at the, the big hospitals in Haiti. And I spent about three weeks and that was kind of the most, I think, humbling experience of my life. Man, I can't even imagine. That sounds absolutely terrifying and devastating. When you decided to stay behind, what were you actually doing in the hospitals? I, I worked within the doctors in the sense of I helped them like translate and I would also transport some of the like patients from, from like the surgery rooms back out to the tent because it, the, the way the hospitals were worked out, they were really uh, at overcapacity, where they kind of set set up thousands of, of tents around the. This is when I was at the like the, the like Haiti's General Hospital um, in, in Port-au-Prince, and they set up tents around the hospital to, to be able to put patients like, post surgeries. And I spent a lot of times with the kids, just like talking about soccer, just get, like talking about just different things that like within our culture that we that that we could relate to and share. And it, what happened was after about three weeks. 
that's when at that point my, my school in Haiti was was not going to be operational for that year. So my family decided it was best for me to actually leave and go to Florida to finish off my freshman year. So when I, I moved to Florida, I moved uh, to like Pembroke Pines. My grandparents used to live in Pembroke Pines. Yeah, that, that's where my, my, my grandparents moved to. And my mom's sisters and like the, the whole family was set up there. And I went to a school called Charles W. Flanagan High School. Uh, it was a, the first time I ever went like to, to a public school. And it, it, it was like, it was a really like good kind of like experience just being, and also being in school in the States. But I, I finished off that semester and I moved back to Haiti sophomore year. Cause at that point my school in Haiti was back and running and I was still like living with my parents. Like I couldn't like continue living at that age without my parents. So I moved back home, but yeah, the earthquake was, was definitely one of like the hardest like periods of my life for sure. Can't even I can't even imagine going through that, man. It, it it was it was hard to to leave my parents. Like when I when I when I left um Haiti to go to Miami to finish off like that year of school, like knowing that my mom was reorg not not just reorganizing, but basically starting over. Like the entire building was completely destroyed. There were just there were the business just to, 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 to create context is a is a pharmaceutical agency. So we import a a, a prescribed drugs from the from big pharma brands in the States and we supply pharmacies and hospitals. But what happens is that there were, there's a lot of pharmacies and hospitals that buy on credit on the earthquake. A lot of the pharmacies and hospitals, a lot of them were destroyed as well. So then a, a period of kind of like restructuring where you kind of have to build from scratch, but then you, you have like credit lines out and you have people that owe you like a lot of money and you still have to, you still owe your, your suppliers. And at the time, like the, it wasn't a, like a pandemic where everyone understood kind of, like everyone took a hit, like the suppliers overseas, they, they still had at the end of the day had to take care of their bottom line. So there, there's certain hardships that my mom had to go through. And it was hard for me to kind of like know that I was in the States continuing school when they, my parents were in Haiti, like dealing with what they were dealing with. But after after the first semester, when I finished off second semester freshman year. I moved back to do like my sophomore, junior and senior year back in my school in Haiti because my school was also a school that was it was a pre-K to 12th grade. Like it was just one school. Like it wasn't a, like a lot of students, but about 300 students overall, like 30 students per grade. So a, lot, so a big like portion of kind of my personal life too was attached to my friends because you're, you're with a core group of like 30 people since you were the age of like four or five. And um, you, you create like those, those long lasting relationships that to, to be honest to this day is one of like the, the most like beneficial things I see in kind of me growing up here. Is like the relationships like you build with like your friends and the people in your class because you really become like family. And I think it's, it's kind of translated to how I, I build new friendships outside of Haiti, whether it was at Georgetown as an undergrad or within the NBA now. It definitely kind of is something that is really strong within like the Haitian culture. But yeah, so kind of like after the earthquake, I moved to, to Pembroke Pines for a semester. At that point, a lot of my friends were, were moving back to Haiti. So it was a clear cut decision that I wanted to move back with my parents my friends were going back and, and my life was there. You know, it was just a pause for a moment because I couldn't go to school. The country was completely like blocked. There was no, there was nothing happening because for a period after the earthquake, we were kind of hit by, by different issues. There was an issue with, with cholera. I think cholera took over 50 to 60,000 like lives post earthquake because people were kind of like relocated to live in tents and there were, there were no like, like great, how to put this, um, it, it plumbings, it systems and stuff like that. So there were like disease ran rampant within the, the capital. And it was definitely like a, a hard time post earthquake to, 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 to bounce back from because the hard, the hard thing too was in 2009, like the year before the earthquake, Haiti was, that was one of the best years in terms of kind of economic growth. It was really kind of like a great period of time. So the earthquake really set us back, I think literally over 30 years from kind of where we were getting to. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a huge blow, right? And what was your feeling like going to the school in Miami? And then how'd you feel when it seemed to be safe to return back after that semester to, to come back home? So when I went to the school in Miami, at that point, I had cousins that were already at the school. Because again, like my mom has six sisters and a lot of them have two to three kids and the, the ones that were in high school made it a lot easy for me, a lot easier for me to transition. Like I lived with my cousins, so we would go to school in the mornings together. And this group of cousins, I grew up with them very closely. Like I was as close to them as I, as I were to my to my sisters. 
And when I got to Miami, it made the transition a lot easier. I, I left my parents, but I was going into kind of like, with, I was living with my second parents. And then it was kind of natural that I wanted to go back because I, I was still a kid. I, I did two more years in, in, in high school. Then I applied to Georgetown for, for undergrad. And I, I moved to DC after getting in. And that was kind of like the start of like the second part of my life. Yeah. Just to back up for a second, was there any sort of normalcy there after the earthquake and finishing up high school? Like, were you and your friends able to just be kids and enjoy those years of your life? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. And that kind of like is a good segue to how like resilient the Haitian population really is in the sense that after about six months post-earthquake, the level of spirits of people wanted to kind of rebuild. And it was kind of like a a leveling of, of energies in the sense that like everyone lost like something or someone. And it was, it was at a point where it wasn't a time to fold, but just a, a time to unite and, and move forward in the sense of like people moving back home. Like there are a lot of people that moved back after the earthquake. And from my standpoint, when I went back, I was a teenager and my high school was, was a great experience. Like I had a lot of fun with my friends. It, it, it wasn't as if we like the, the, the earthquake, like, it crippled us for the rest of our lives. It was just a, a moment that we kind of like understood and it was something that no one would ever forget, but we still kind of had our lives to carry on. And I was like fortunate enough to have like a lot of fun and a great time in high school. And I was able like to challenge myself like within classes, like within sports as well. Like I played soccer a lot and it really kind of prepared me to to go to Georgetown later on. So the earthquake was, was definitely like a, a big blow to everybody. And we were definitely fortunate to be able to kind of bounce back from that because it was really a terrifying and, and tragic kind of experience overall. It was a transition, but we were still able to kind of move forward from that. That's that's awesome. And then you finish up high school and, and you're off to DC and Georgetown. Was Georgetown always on your radar because of your dad's experience there? And was that like the only choice for you? And I know your parents seem pretty cool about stuff, but did they push you in that direction or, or was that something like, I look up to my dad and, and, and that's where I want to go. So, so funny story. I actually really wanted to go to GW. And when I, when I, I applied, I got in and because for Georgetown, honestly, it, I didn't think I was Georgetown material or that I was, I would have gotten in, but at the same time, it was a dream school, but I was, I was mostly more excited about going, about getting accepted to GW. Cause that was one of my like bigger acceptance. And Georgetown was like, it was just like a dream, like come true in that sense. Like I didn't set myself out to think that I could get in because I didn't want to expose myself to kind of like the rejection and, and feeling like hurt after, but definitely like getting in was kind of a huge, huge blessing and leaving Haiti to go to DC and to go to Georgetown was, was also great because I had family in DC. Like I had a, a cousin that was, that was at two, at two cousins at GW, I had cousins that lived in, in Maryland and cousins that live in Virginia. So I also had family there. So I didn't feel like I was just going to like a place with, with no family, which was great. And I had actually visited Georgetown's campus as a junior. We came for our like college visits and I, I really like fell in love with the campus. But again, I, I had like kind of this defense mechanism that I didn't want to put all my hopes and eggs in that basket because I really didn't think I was going to get in. But yeah, it was it was honestly like a, a huge, huge blessing. And like I, I moved to DC and I had like an amazing, an amazing experience overall. The hardest transition for me was kind of like the weather because I did like grow up or like on, as an island boy. And even going to like Miami, Miami is very humid. And like I wasn't really exposed to snow at all. And and get, the winters were really, really like cold for me. And it was that that was I, I'd say the, the kind of like the hardest transition for me. But it, it was it was a great experience like I had. I had like an amazing time. I started Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service and very quickly, I think within like the second semester, I knew I wanted to like transfer into the business school. And it was just kind of awesome to be able to take kind of those type like different classes within my first year. And I was really kind of exposed to the a lot of the great aspects of Georgetown. And then I, I got involved with campus life and it was honestly, I had like a, an amazing four years for sure. Do you remember the first time you saw like a like a big snowstorm? I mean, flurries are one thing, but like, did you have any like blizzards that you went through in college and, you know, oh. school shuts down and it's just a good excuse to like 
get drunk with your friends? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that was that was kind of like because another thing too about like DC was DC was really unprepared for kind of snowstorms. Where I could I kid you not, there was probably one plow that was shared for all the city. And um, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it was really the the city was really unprepared. So if there were a couple of inches of snow. Campus was like closed, and it was it was it was honestly like a, a good time. We had like a like snowball fl- snowball fights like around Yates. It was a great, honestly, like great, great memories for sure. Was it like a kid in a candy store type feeling when you see snow for the first time? Yes, it was. I, I can say at first it was, but I think within the first like three days when like it was just slushy and just gross, I, I grew out of it like very, very quickly. <laughs> but yeah, the first the first the first couple of days were like I, I definitely had like a lot of fun. But it did wear out. The only redeeming quality for winter, in my opinion, is fresh snow or like a blizzard is is fun to enjoy. But then once that dissipates or if that never comes, winter pretty much sucks. (laughs) A a funny thing, by September, I had my winter coat like whipped out walking around campus. (laughs) So my my freshman year, I lived in in Harmon Hall. And literally, like I was just like, everyone already expected like, okay, he's going to have his coat on. I never really kind of adjusted to the cold in that sense. Like every year, year over year, by September, my winter coat would come out and it would just get fluffier over time. Like there would be a layer that would be added every year. So once it dropped below 70 degrees is when the coat came out, like the 60s was too cold? Easy, easily, easily. 60s, 60s, there was like a parka coat out. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. It's funny, you drop all these names of these buildings. I have no idea what you're talking about. I attend Georgetown's MBA program, and I've never really been on campus. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is sad. It is sad. It's weird. Hopefully, it's hopefully weird. By, by, by fall, we're able to kind of go back and enjoy kind of like the campus for the beautiful campus that it is. Absolutely. And then so you graduate, right? You got the double major and, and the Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. Did you work for PwC right out of school or did you work for RBI right out of school? And why did you choose to wait to work for the family business? So for PwC, I interned with PwC since my sophomore year. They had this pre-internship program called um, PwC Smart Start that worked in agreement with the with the McDonough School of Business. And I, I signed up for like the summer internship and I went back for the following junior year summer working in their like financial markets practice. And they, they offered me a full-time offer for their DC office. But at that point, I wanted to move closer to home. I didn't want to move back to Haiti, but I wanted to move to Florida just because that's where most of my family was. And they were kind enough to kind of like work with the PwC office in Miami. And I was like the, the only associate that joined the, the financial markets team in Miami. So I was really blessed and beneficial to, to have that. But I started working in October of 2017, about like four months post-graduation. And it, from from early on, I knew it was a great a great start to my career. But I, I knew I wasn't going to stay at PwC forever, just because I knew it was an experience, and I knew it was like I wanted to build a skill set, but also move on to the next thing. And I spent about ten months in PwC before I started talks with RBI. So RBI, honestly, they, they reached out to me and their culture was, it was super attractive to me. They, they had a very like international like employee base and like 60% of them were like came from Brazil. And the way they worked, they did work long hours, but the pay was a lot more attractive than my first year pay at PwC. And also kind of like the, the things you were exposed to and the field that I was going to be working in was, was in development and finance. So I, I, I wanted to broaden my skill set. And also like work for another company and and rbi at the time and still today that that was kind of one of the bigger headquarters in miami and i thought it was a great opportunity to further my career and you asked about haiti to be honest with you i i never thought about going back to haiti in the sense of like going back to work for the family business growing up i never had kind of like that pressure from my parents so i always i try to create kind of like opportunities and dreams for for myself in the states but I, I think subconsciously I always had something that like I, I, I could always go back and if push comes to shove and I needed to go back, I would. 
And what happened that made me leave was my mom needed help back in Haiti with the family business. And it didn't take much for me to, to decide on moving back, just given like the love I have for my mom and kind of how I, like I know she sacrificed a lot for her kids and for myself in like throughout her entire life. And I, I really do anything for her. So I, I, I left in like December of 2019 and it was kind of abrupt for, for kind of my friends and everyone else because it was, it wasn't planned. It was really within two weeks, I, I packed everything and I left. And it was one of like the, the best decisions I've ever made because the company had, like was at a really, it was, at a, it was struggling and just given kind of like the, the nature of the political space in Haiti and kind of how the economy is, businesses do struggle. And it was hard because like the, the family business used to be this like huge, huge, huge business. And over time, it kind of dwindled because of the country, like the, the because of contraband, because of different like political like shifts. There were a lot of uh, hurdles that my, my mom had to navigate through. And over time, like my grandparents, my, my grandfather left the country because the country was unsafe and he didn't really want like that life for, for, for any of his kids. But the reality was that my mom wanted to continue the legacy and she stayed. And me coming back was kind of like me coming back to like help my mom. And it's been like a roller coaster in the sense I'm, I'm happy I'm back and I've been able to like help a lot within the company. And at the same time, I was able to kind of apply to go back to Georgetown and get my MBA. Whereas at, at RBI, it, it was kind of like, it was discouraged. Like you, you didn't really have the time to kind of like pursue your MBA. And it was something that I wanted to do. And moving back like home and like working with my mom, I was, I was able to, to have the time to kind of apply and get in. I'm, I'm super like fortunate to my mom and to kind of what we still have because if the company today like celebrates like 71 years and it's like we are very proud of like what we've kind of accomplished and it's been just great to like learn and work with my mom. Like we've done a lot, we've, we've automated a lot of our processes, we've added same day delivery. I've, I've hired five, five people, trained them, I've created a sales team structure that they have reports to do to give me every day and it's just it, it's been like an awesome kind of a transition like out of Miami and I don't regret it and yeah I'm, I'm just thankful I'm able to kind of help my mom the way I'm doing so my, my sister Stephanie also works with us in the company and it's great to kind of have to have our family work together and and, and try to like and, and, and get by in in a country that's that's so hard to do so you know so so I am thankful and I am like like blessed for for kind of what we have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kudos to you. I mean, that's a big decision to make as you start your career. Now, first of all, what what does RBI stand for? And we kind of glossed over it, but what do they do? So RBI stands for Restaurant Brands International, and they're the parent company of Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons. So the branch I worked for was was for Burger King. And they're basically like a franchise-based company that they have over 18,000 franchise stores all over the world. I worked for, for lag development. So the countries in my purview were the Latin, like Latin America and the Caribbean. So we, we work with franchisees to basically like help them like open more stores. And, and yeah, so I work in like development. So my, my, entire, my entire job was to help the company grow. So we had like certain contracts and development agreements that we draft and have and have signed by the franchisees, ha- having them like have commitments to open X amount of stores over over a period of time, and that's really how the company the, the company structure is that they they're a company that that's really lean in the sense of they grow by 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 franchise growth. I wanted to ask. So this is kind of a more of a personal question for me and my knowledge. Do you have any insight? So, like, how do they create new food? Like, Popeyes came out with a new chicken sandwich when you were there, right? Like, where you were in Miami, do they test it? Is there a kitchen they make it in and come up with a new chicken sandwich design for? Like, did you get to see that process take place or know what was going on behind the curtain? Yeah, so there, there are definitely some brave and revolutionary food scientists behind kind of the whole operations of design and, and new flavors and, and new new products. And despite that, I, I didn't have access to see them actually work in the kitchen. The, the kitchen was in the headquarters building. So what we'd have, we'd have random tastings throughout the week of different like products that they would launch, whether it would be in the desserts or for the Popeye chicken sandwich. They were the, like long before the actual launch, when they were basically like 
uh, deciding between different vendors of chicken patties. We had a flood of tastings that were like just amazing to amazing to, to benefit from for sure. RBI really has like an amazing team of people that work for them um, from like a, like various different backgrounds and different experiences that really kind of make like the company like who they are. So Popeyes came out with a new chicken sandwich. Now you see all these com- uh, all these different restaurants come out with chi- the their new chicken sandwiches. Like what? Why? Why is that? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I think it's all about like chasing the demand and not wanting to like fall behind. And I feel like hmm. the whole phase of of Popeyes chicken sandwich there was. I don't know, a huge shift towards like chicken sandwiches. And it was a company that like, like I remember when the, when, when the launch of the chicken sandwich came out, they were selling about a thousand sandwiches a day on average in each of their stores. And from the first launch, they had to, they kind of, they, they ran out of patties and we, we basically had to like shut down the chicken sandwich for a couple months and reevaluate, like find different vendors for, for the relaunch. But it is definitely like kind of like just chasing a fad. And and Popeyes were, were, was like quick quick to the quick to the podium. I think I was telling you last week that with the Popeyes chicken sandwich, when you couldn't find them in stores anywhere, it was it like it, it started to circulate on social media and stuff that there was no chicken sandwich really, and they were just doing this to create this fervor and publicity to make you think there was a chicken sandwich. And to get you talking about Popeyes and going to Popeyes and trying to get it, but no one could get it. So it was like this, um, you know, mysterious thing that was it real or was it not real? And it was just like this word of mouth weird thing that happened because they couldn't keep up with demand. Yeah, the the honest answer is that they literally just ran out. Like by the time, like if you would tell a friend that, oh yeah, they have pop- the sandwich there, you would get to the, the store and they would run out. The lines were like. Ridiculous. I remember I, I went for to just have the in-store experience. I think like the, the third week of launch and I spent three hours in line. <laughs> and it was just kind of like a thing that like we that just we, we had to do. And and I saw it even like me coming home, like my, my cousins and my aunts and uncles would would have by seven or eight o'clock. I would get calls like from the office of them to like asking me to come up with a sandwich. And it was just like, that's not like I, I really can't. Like I, <laughs> So the hype was really kind of just like everyone and it was it was really kind of like an insane place to work at that time but you got a sense of like learning like different aspects of like how like the corporation works and yeah it, the, the chicken sandwich was was really that <laughs> that was that was honestly one of like a, a like a memory that i'll never forget especially the tastings that we had um like come like leading up to it like that i'll that i'll, I'll forever be grateful some of the perks of working in the fast food industry, I guess, at the corporate headquarters, right? <laughs> I guess we're down the home stretch right now. Where do you see yourself in a year from now about to graduate from MSB? Do you think you'll return home to work for the family business or what do you see for your future? Honestly, what I'd like to do is I'd like to spend um, some time working in the States again, because right now, like another thing that's been happening in the past like 12 months is that Haiti's become a lot worse to the point where my family's thinking of, of like selling the company. And I, I just want to be like prepared that if that is the case, that I can I can continue living my life in the States. But as of right now, I'm very invested in the company in the sense of different projects and stuff that I have going on. So I'd like to to honestly like it's it's soon to tell. For me, just given kind of what's going on right now, there's also the reality that we were in transition to a next president within like the next like 12 months. So there will be like certain changes. And as of right now, I want to keep the door open. And what would be an awesome kind of structure for me would be finding like a remote opportunity that allows me to continue living in Haiti while expanding my skill base and my knowledge base working for, for a company. And the two industries that like, I'd like to work in are in the private equity space and consulting. And as of right now, like I, I'm not, I'm not pursuing an internship in, in consulting because this summer I have a lot of projects within the company here in Haiti that it, it would be kind of impossible to to leave. But my plan is to to move to DC in early August or late July to be able to set up to be um, on campus for the second year. And to basically join the recruiting process, but yeah, as of now, the the future is a little is a little bit open. Cool, that's good. I I, I think that's smart to keep your options open and and 
it sounds like you have some ideas of where you want to take it. And I think that's the first step. When you say things have gotten worse, are you talking about like the violence in the country or the political unrest and the president? You're talking about the president of the country is changing in the next year? Yeah. So the level of violence has definitely spiked in the sense of there's a lot more kidnappings. There's a lot more days like within the year where you can't, like, it's, it's unsafe to go to work because we have about like 24 employees that work, uh, work at commercial and 90% of them take public transport. But a lot of times they come from further areas away from the city. And when there are problems, like public transport sometimes shuts down and it's dangerous to like have your employees come to work. A lot of people are just the, the general level of, of fear in the country has really escalated where everybody in the country, like regardless of their their, their socioeconomic class, they are literally scared of being kidnapped from the, the people that sell like peanuts on the on the road to the business owners. And that's something that's never happened. Like in the past, kidnapping and stuff were really done towards the elite class. Now it's kind of like ran rampant throughout everywhere. The other day there were there was like a, a gang out of Village du Jeu, which is literally their translation is City of God. This gang that literally they, they took over a police force. Like they, they had like a police intervention. They tried to go in like and bust up a, like a gang in, in the city and the gang like took over the police, they took over like their armored trucks. And it was something that you like you see in like Call of Duty. Honestly, the things that you see these people have, they have like M60s, they have they have submachine guns, they have they have rifles, they have AK-47s, they have they have guns that cost between like like four to like eight thousand dollars and they can't buy bread to eat. And it's super like it's super just frustrating because you, you see that it's kind of like a, a result of a failed state. They shouldn't be able to afford these guns, but they have them in their possessions. Why? Because at some point in time, some government official, someone found it, it, it was in their best interest to arm these people for, for their own gain. But then when they stop like paying them, then you have just armed militiamen that can, that, that can operate out of fear. And you have you have so many subgroups um, in Haiti that have been created. And it's a lawless state at the moment right now. And trying to see a future here past a lens of, of six months or eight months is tough. We're kind of in like a, a vicious cycle that I, I can't, with an honest, honest face, tell you that I see kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel. There's, there's a song of J. Cole that I that like really like. J. Cole's one of my favorite artists. And I definitely like chase him around college, like going to like concerts or whatnot. But one song that I love is that he has a song that's called like Love Yours. And it's basically kind of like things aren't perfect and grass can be greener somewhere else. But sometimes you kind of just like have to love what you have and protect your own. Because at the end of the day, like you you do have kind of a sense of responsibility. Like as much as I, I'd love, like I, I don't want to see my mom retire in Haiti. I, I don't see myself kind of like raising a teenager in Haiti either, just given kind of like how insecure it is. Like it's, it's unsafe for, like you can't have a kid that goes to the park, for instance. Like there isn't like really parks like that for where it's safe for like someone to just walk in and, and, and go to the park, you know? Like even going out mm-hmm. for like ice cream, it's kind of, you have to think about, hey, is it safe to like, let me check. It's really, it's hard. And I don't know, but at the same time, you kind of like, if, you, if you're like, okay, well, let's say like we were to sell the business and whatnot, but then you have, you have 24 employees that are basically like, they're, 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 that's their life, you know, like they're, that's how they feed their families and that's how they feed themselves is through like the income that they make from, from the company. So what happens like when you do sales, it's not like an easy decision or, or process. It's just like, I've realized that just to just go with the process. Yeah. Maybe you have some political ambitions to come back and write the ship. Honestly, I've seen so much ugly within the political space in the sense from like an outside lens that I, I don't feel like that's my path in fixing it. I feel like my path could be through the private sector, whether it's in like employing a lot more Haitians than I am now and creating different enterprises that can create like economic wealth. But the whole politics aspect, like it, it's distasteful to me. I haven't seen like effective change come from that standpoint. And I feel like I can have like a tangible impact on is if can I create a job that'll employ three people that'll be able to support their families, you know, stuff like that. And that's kind of the, the future. If, if I if I were to come back and, and live here and live here permanently, that's, that would be kind of more along the lines of what I would want to do would be to expand and maybe to create like different enterprises where I can employ other people. But politics have I'd like to kind of like stay as far away from that as possible. Yeah, I can feel that it's 
it's a grimy business and and yeah if you're turned off by it, it makes sense and i think your approach is smart and you can have just as big an impact in the private sector too i think uh which is something i think that comes to light in business school too yeah so i really hope that you move to dc in july or august and we get to see each other in person and kudos to your parents for doing an unbelievable job raising their kids and i feel like if they were to pressure you this is just my personal take on on life but like i feel like the more parents pressure their kids into doing something that they want them to do yeah the further away they're going to get from it yeah that's that's like my life story i saw from both perspectives parents that kind of really shaped their kids to like coming back to live in haiti and seeing my parents and the kind of the reality today is that i voluntarily came back you know, and I and I choose to do so, and I think that's the most authentic way to be. Where I where I don't feel like I came back because I I, I was forced to do so or whatever. It literally was a self-made decision, and it's something that makes me happy because I know like it, I, I wouldn't live with regret. You know, like the decisions I've made or decisions I want to make. Absolutely, and because your parents were you know hands off in the sense that they, that they let you you make your own decisions. Now it's come full circle and, and they're kind of reaping the benefits of the help that you've given them. And, and it's great to see you so close to them and wanting to come back and pay it back, knowing that they made all these sacrifices for you and your sisters. It's an awesome story. And, and I think it's, you know, one of perseverance and resilience and leadership and just family ties and so many good things that can come from having a support system in place even if you're you know living in tough circumstances that good things can happen and i feel super lucky to be a part of the georgetown community and super lucky to be able to call you a colleague and, and teammate so i really appreciated you taking the time sebastian and sharing your stories with us so thanks again Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for having me and for like creating a platform like this to share like, stories. And I think it just like it proves like more of kind of what what's instilled in this like like Georgetown community is kind of just like having creating spaces for people to be themselves and also share their stories. So I I commend you on on that front. And it really is like awesome to like get to know you and be like your teammate, man. Honestly, I I look forward to me moving to DC, grabbing a beer and just uh, like kicking it back at some point, Mike. I can't wait for that day, Sebastian. Can't come soon enough. Thank you, man. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, take care and, and we'll catch you next time here on McDonough Talks. Thanks, Sebastian. Thank you, Mike.